Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 274. Today is Sunday, the 22nd of April, 2018, and this one is a big one. This podcast is with Seth Godin, who's an author, entrepreneur, a teacher, and a multi-time, big-time TED Talker, with a million people listening to his daily word on his blog. He's written 18 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, my favorite, and Tribes. In this conversation with Seth, we dig into transformation, how to make change happen, the keys to making a long-term strategy work, the weirdness in the marketplace, GDPR, and permission marketing, as well as his alt-MBA, executive MBA startup, and podcasting. It's a full, punchy, and instructional interview. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome, Seth Godin, to the Minter Dialogue. It is an honor and a privilege to have you on board, Seth. I'm so glad. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for doing this. It is fun. So yes, and I, I um, so we've got a lot that we can be riffing on, Seth, because um, you've obviously traversed uh, the world in, in, in so many ways, written so many things, and lead in so many inspirational manners. But I have uh, roughly five areas I wanted to try and delve into in the 30 minutes we have together. Let's go. And the theme is change. Um, so basically... I work over in Europe and I'm dealing with digital transformation. It's all the rage and yet we know that change or transformation programs are suffering and are not really working. So I was wondering, what is the key or what might be the linchpin of change as far as you're concerned in making organizations get this digital transformation to happen? Well, it's not popular, but it's true. And the answer is failure. That um, what it means to be lean is to engage in the marketplace, uh, minimum viable products, experiments, things to explore the edges. And the reason that it's called exploring is because you're not sure it's going to work. So if you go at this and say, how can you guarantee it's going to work, then you will fail. So failure, what about fear? Is that another F word that goes in there? Right. So... Fear of failure is even worse than failure because fear of failure happens before that. We can initiate fear of failure without doing any work whatsoever. Uh, I think then the key for an organization as opposed to an individual is to use the power of the organization to set fear aside. The organization makes a deal with you, which is come to work every day, do what we say, and in exchange, we promise to keep paying you. Well, if the organization has earned that trust, then the leadership is about being able to say to your people, this feels frightening, but you're safe. We need to go fail now because it's the only way we're going to get better at this. And presumably the the head of the company has to lead by example and therefore be prepared to make a fool of him or herself. Well, I, I fool is a, is a loaded word. You know, I think there's a big difference between management and leadership. And organizations with more than five people or, that are successful have managers and leaders. Managers help people do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. They're in the business of compliance, whereas leaders are in the business of failing forward. 
So yes, that CEO at the top, she has to be a leader. And what that means is redefining what it is to make a fool of yourself. It seems to me that somebody who's a fool is a car company executive that lost a ton of market share to Tesla when they had everything they needed to build their own version of that. That's foolish. Uh, the reason that the big car companies didn't do that is because they were afraid, not because they couldn't. Totally. I, I've, I've listened to so many of your different talks, sir, and I, and I know how, how important you think of this concept of fear. So, Seth, a question that I, I definitely wanted to hear from you is, of all the books you've written, which do you believe has provided or provoked the most change in the business world? Well, I have a particular approach to my books, and the approach is I try to tell people things that they already knew, hmm. that if I do it well, people will say, of course, and then they will go do that thing that they were hesitating to do. And every once in a while I say something that is completely original, but that's not my best work. My best work is helping people get in sync around a, a truth that they can embrace. And with that said, then, the books that have touched the most people are Purple Cow and The Dip and Lynchpin. And in all three cases, what I've done is helped people organize those around them to move forward. And that's the thing. We live in this astonishingly privileged moment in time. The world is safer than it has ever been. There are more resources for more people, and we are wasting it. And we're wasting it because we're afraid. It's like these duh moments. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say it in far fewer words than I just used. Well, which is, uh, with a, such a pithy man, a hard thing to find. So, um, Seth, again, looking at the books you've written, um, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of them a little later, but which is the one that you learned the most from, which perhaps you also got the most energy from providing? I, I would pick uh, two. The first is Survival is Not Enough which is a book that sold almost no copies. Hmm. It's about evolution. I certainly read more books, did more research, worked harder on that book. I probably put 3,000 hours of writing into it, that book. Hmm. Um, it didn't work because people are afraid of evolution, particularly hmm. in the United States. Um, but hmm. I learned a ton. It changed m my outlook. And then the most recent book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, uh, which I illustrated myself, got myself back into the habit of page layout, and it helped me explore things associated with mindfulness. And because I forced myself to make every part of it fit on one page, I had to do a lot of boiling down. Do you practice mindfulness? Well, on a good day, I try. <laughs> but without trying, of course. I've been, uh, I've been introduced to a, a new app, if you will. Someone else who's like you know, Andy Puttycomb. At Headspace, uh, it's called, she's called Monique Rhodes from New Zealand, and she has spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. And anyway, I've been having her in my ears every morning and bringing a lot of mindfulness to me. Um, oh, that's great. It is. Um, so, again, focusing on this notion of change, if you're running a business today, you've got to have the best products, you've got to recruit and retain the best talent, you've got to deal with shareholder pressure and short-term profits, so it's sort of a hair-raising combination. The question I have for you is, to what extent do you believe that purpose is the only winning long-term strategy? Well, we get into semantics 
really fast here. What does purpose mean to you? Well, generally speaking, the you know I, I want to look at purpose as being something beyond just making money. Some bigger purpose other than okay. just feeding the shareholder. So if somebody leaves their job as senior vice president at Starbucks and takes a job as senior vice president of Nike, has their purpose changed? Their personal purpose. Well, that depends what they're looking for as personal purpose. If their purpose is to uh, make people move faster, then I would argue that no, they actually... (laughs) (laughs) That was very clever. Okay, so let me try to tell you where I'm going here. You Corporations are not people. People are people. And people generally have a purpose, and it's fairly generic. There's only five or ten to choose from. It is not specific that my purpose is to create more kimchi in the world. Mm-hmm. No. Your purpose is about respect and dignity and status and safety. That doesn't change across humans. When a bunch of humans who share a, a a handful of purposes come together and build an organization, that organization finds a host of strategies and tactics that will let them engage with and change people for the better so that they can achieve their personal purpose, which is safety, dignity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that too often we try to reverse engineer this purpose narrative to hide the fact that, yeah, we want to make a profit so we can feel safe and respected. And there's nothing wrong with that because it could very well be that ethically making a profit is a measure that you are serving somebody. On the other hand, if we say in that horrible Ayn Randian sort of way, my purpose is to make a profit and it doesn't matter which corners I cut and it doesn't matter who I hurt, then I think just the very statement of that gives you away. So I guess what I would come back to is this. You need a strategy because your tactics are going to fail. When your tactics fail, it helps to have a strategy so you can invent new tactics. I think your strategy ought to live within the boundaries that you're proud of, that your strategy ought to be something you can point to and say, if it works, I will be delighted to take credit for it. So if our strategy is to uh, manipulate homeowners to get them to go to foreclosure so we can make a profit, then thank you for being honest. But no, I'm not proud of your strategy and I don't think you should be either. Um, But in the long run, because so many things change so fast, it's really useful to have a strategy that you can count on. Cool. So if we're talking about, for example, the how that you're talking in the Ayn Rand example, and we're broaching the topic of ethics at, at, at the way I read that is that we're talking about something that's personal. Mm-hmm. And yet in business, we have been mostly trained to focus on the professional side of things and to leave the personal at home. To what extent do you believe that you need to bring your person to work and your full personality? Well, if you feel like you have to leave your humanity at home, you need a new job. <laughs> Right. I mean, that doesn't mean that you get to act the way you feel like acting all the time. 
right? You feel like wearing a bathing suit to work, but you have a meeting with a banker, you wear a suit because it's going to help you with your long-term strategy. But if you're ashamed of the work you do and the way you do it and the people you do it with, and you're still going to spend 2,000 hours a year for 40 years doing it, I don't understand who you are and why that's on your agenda. It seems that there are certain industries who perhaps it's, it's, it is mostly, mostly about making money. And maybe there's a political correctness reversal, but at some level, it's almost like, well, I could, I'm going to be ashamed about just making money. Well, there's different kinds of making money. So the hedge fund guys who make millions and millions of dollars a year, they could point to the fact that by fixing a problem in the market, they were able to extract money that wouldn't have been extracted if they hadn't done it. I don't believe that those people are more worthy than a school teacher, and I don't believe that the money they got paid is an indication of their worth. I just think that they found a situation and used legal means to exploit it. And if that's what you want to do and it makes you happy to do it, then I'm not going to tell you not to do it. But I I have a lot of problem with people who say, I make more money, therefore I create more value. I don't buy that. Hmm. All right, so uh, I haven't read all your books, Seth. Total That's transparency. Okay. Uh, but two of them that I loved uh, are We Are All Weird and Tribes. And somehow I, I kind of put them together. Um, yeah. I, I feel that there's a whole logic behind them. And I, I, I ran a company called Redkin, which is a hairdresser company. Of course, you don't need so much of that these days, Seth. But Well, I just have to interrupt because, first of all, I've heard of it. And secondly, we're using video here, and I've been admiring your, your locks. They're very striking. So well done. Thank you, sir. Um, but so Redken is this beautiful brand that sits within the L'Oreal portfolio, and we had a true tribe feeling to it. And uh, so I, I, I really, I would say, embrace this notion of, of weirdness. Uh, and I'm thinking that it's somehow because it's still not mainstream. Because at some level, if everybody is bohemian and everybody is weird, that will become the new norm. Yeah, I'm glad you liked the book, but that's not the punchline. No. Um, the, The punchline of the book is, why does it make us uncomfortable to A, imagine that we are weird, and B, to proudly say as a marketer or a business person, I seek to serve the weird? Both of those things make us uncomfortable. And the reason is, until recently, the media profited from the narrative of we are all the same, we are all normal, that you need to watch the show, buy this product to fit in. And the explosion of media options in the last 10 years has reversed that. So now the media is telling us that being a fan of left-handed sumo wrestlers is totally appropriate if you're one of us. And marketers are having trouble keeping up with that, but that's the future. So L'Oreal has an interesting strategy of niche brands, but most of their niche brands aren't niche. Most of their niche brands are mass. And we're going to see, because it's easier than ever to make stuff and easier ever to talk about stuff, that we're going to have more and more of these brands that a mass marketer will just wrinkle her nose at and say, well, that's just niche. But I'm arguing there aren't going to be any more mass brands. There's not going to be another Heinz Ketchup. There's not going to be another Ford Galaxy. That's over. There's no reason for it to be 
just one. We have unlimited shelf space. We have unlimited media options. There's no uh, economy of scale of making 4 million cars a year. So it won't happen again. And I think the people at Heinz and Procter & Gamble and L'Oreal are coming to realize that. And the argument of we are all weird in tribes is that's probably a good thing unless you're a shareholder in one of those giant companies. So instead of like saying, well, that's an asterisk, let's understand it's the core now. It's the thing that needs to be embraced. Well, I, I totally go with that. There's no doubt about that. The way I, I talk about it is the need to embrace imperfection, which is a, a little bit of a different variation because it, it neither of them is taught at business school in any event. Right. You know, business school is another problem that I could rant about. For we are we are we're going to have a moment on that for sure because I want to talk about Alt MBA uh, before we finish. But so going sticking with this weirdness element, right? So on the one hand, everybody's weird. We have to deal with all these different you know personalizations for all these customers around the world. And yet, what I was looking at was thinking about how me or my company, my brand, is weird and how it's going to find affiliations with weirdnesses in people around the world, but not everybody, because you can't be trying to attract everybody. So then, as far as being the leader is concerned, to what extent does that leader need to incarnate that weirdness? Because the challenge is if I'm you know, the CFO, of course, my job is just to make sure the count comes in at the end. But is, is, it, is it possible for a company to go for this weirdness without the boss being he or she the one that leads it? Oh, most definitely. That um, you don't have to be uh, a woman to make pantyhose well and market it well. And uh, you don't have to be a surgeon to come up with a scalpel that will change the way a certain kind of surgery is done. So I don't think it's necessary for the CEO of Harley-Davidson to drive uh, a giant motorcycle. It actually helps to develop empathy if you wear pantyhose and drive a motorcycle, <laughs> but it's not required um, because the, the, we would like to believe that if you're willing to be a leader, you will have enough empathy to act as if, to be able to say, if, if, if these were the factors in my life, this, in fact, is the way I'd want to interact. And a simple example is the people who design computer interfaces know how computers work. But I certainly hope that they are designing them for people who don't know how computers work. That requires empathy. All right. In, in, a, in a continuing vein, one of the things that I think is supremely and more so today than it was, let's say, 20 years ago anyway, is that the employee needs to embrace and be the brand far more so than in the past where messaging and marketing could just be blasted out through a 30-second sure. spot. So now what I'm thinking, and the reason why I bring that up is that I have tended to believe that you know wearing the pantyhose or, or driving the motorcycle is incarnating the values of the brand. And if you, if you do that, then you lead by example. The rest of your employees will... There's a recruitment process, a, an onboarding process that leads them to say, well, the boss does it, I should do it too. Because if the boss doesn't do it, then developing that empathy becomes harder throughout the organization. Yeah, so uh, in Lynchpin, I talked about a Marine commandant named Krulak, who coined Krulak's Law, in which he pointed out that World War I and World War II were won by generals. And 
that recent conflicts, it's the private in the field who is making decisions that change everything. And so what, basically what you're doing is giving the lowest paid, lowest trained people in the organization the most important job of directly engaging with the customer. And the challenge that you have is it's very hard to scale true believers. And the second challenge is if you need to be a true believer to have empathy, it's going to create brittleness and a lack of mobility of point of view. Better to have professionals, professionals who are trained to understand how to bring empathy to the situation. And, you know, if you look at the unfortunate uh, speed bump that Starbucks had this weekend in Philadelphia, where uh, a manager called the police because two people were sitting in the store who were black. How do you train for that? Right. Is there is now there going to be a new rule in the Starbucks rule book? Mm -hmm. Because the Roy, the Ray Kroc McDonald's rule book was everything is a rule. Do not trust the frontline person to make any decisions. Mm -hmm. But going forward, what you need the rule to be is use your best judgment, treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And then you need to spend time having people develop empathy that a white store manager cannot imagine what it is like to be a black real estate agent sitting in a Starbucks, but she can try. And it's the trying that we're seeing come up over and over again. That empathy is about trying, that you're not using your power, even a clerk has power to act as a bureaucrat. You're being you're bringing your humanity to work and say, that's what this place is. And, you know, Rich Carlton, I always forget which hotel it is. Their slogan is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Hmm. And the idea is give the chambermaid, which is the bottom of the totem pole, uh, a budget of $250 that she can spend anytime she wants to make any customer happy. And you talk to someone at Marriott about that, they say that's insane. Of course. But in fact, it's the cheapest, simplest way to build an amazing hotel yeah. because it's the chambermaid who sees everything. And so if she has the power and the authority to say to a millionaire customer, oh, I'm very sorry, the room is on us tonight, that's going to change the entire hotel's posture. And that is the future of smaller organizations dealing with weird tribal organizations, which is we need to act like humans. We can't have a rule book for everything. Yeah, it's, it's about mindset, not policies. Yeah, exactly. So I think I want to switch into Alt-MBA just right now um, because one of the, I, you know, so Alt-MBA, for anyone who's listening, doesn't know about it yet, <laughs> 2015 started by yours in front of Seth Godin as a an alternative executive MBA. It's a one-month program that's very reasonable in pricing, something like $3,500. And uh, it's designed to have just a, a few, a, maybe 100 people maximum per online only. What is it that Alt-MBA, in your words, provides that executive MBA programs are missing? You know, the, the academy is built on the idea that knowledge is scarce. So you come to the building with all the libraries and the books to gain knowledge. And given that knowledge, you can do something other people can't do. And as of 10 years ago, knowledge is no longer scarce. That 
access to all the information is there. If you want to know the Black-Scholes option pricing model, you can learn it in less than five minutes online. So it doesn't make sense to go spend two years or six months in a program designed to teach you something you could learn at home for free. Mm-hmm. So what's the future? The future is learning attitude, learning posture, learning empathy, learning how to market to yourself what you are capable of. So that's why we built an intense workshop. In, you know, we're in more than 40 countries. We've got more than 2,000 alumni now. And what we do is we help people see the world differently, make better decisions, be able to persuade others of their point of view. Those are the three things we teach. But there's no videos. There's no lectures. There's no acquisition of knowledge. Zero. I am not in it. I've got, you know, 60 coaches around the world who are all alumni who are in it. And that self-fueling project orientation changes people Hmm. and so that's how we built it and we're now in our 21st session because it works and the reason it works is that when you're done you can't say to yourself anymore i can't go that fast i can't make that much change happen i can't see other people because you just did it and that's what i'm trying to do going forward is create experiences that can't be unseen they're rewiring people's minds that's the goal. And it only works because they're enrolled. I can't do it to people. I can only do it with people. Totally. The thing I, I haven't taken it, of course, but what I did take away from some of the witnesses that went, went through it was this notion of empathy. That's why I bring it up now. And also this idea of the knowledge is within the group and that they call each other out. They, 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 they all have to come with their game to the party. And the learning also happens through the group. Bingo. So in the last session, Sheila, uh, 80 years old, lived on the Isle of Man, is in a study group with someone who's uh, 27 years old and lives in Cleveland. And what usually happens at the beginning is someone says, well, wait, I want to be in a group with other people who are senior executives and worked at Red Ken or Red Bull or whatever it is. But within an hour, they realize it is not about where you've been. It's about how do you see the world and Everyone sees it differently than you, and that's the process. Well, I, I'm I'm very curious as to how it goes. I wouldn't put it against me going down, but I also noted that the the this early decision deadline for the summer session is this Monday, the 23rd of April. That's me who gets to sell it for you. So um, I wanted to go back into one other thing, Seth, uh, which is a European concept, which is GDPR, which is this legislation that's coming in yep. May 25th in Europe. Uh, I would like to think of it actually as permission marketing law. (laughs) What's your take and do we need something similar in the United States? Yeah. So I, I have a podcast called the Kimbo and the last episode was about this. And basically I accepted the blame for helping to invent the problem. Uh, When I was at Yahoo in 1998 and nine, we started to use data mining because advertisers want to run first priority ads that reach everyone. And if they can't afford that, second priority ads that reach people who are going to respond as cheap as possible. That's all advertisers want. What does Google and Facebook want? Google and Facebook want people, advertisers, to auction, bid up every slot they've got. That's where they make all their profit. So if you think about Google, you might pay $50 a click for the right ad on Google. And you're going to do that even if you only make $51 in profit because 
If you don't, your competitor will. So Google's keeping 49% of the profit and you're getting, you know, not 49, 98% of profit and you're getting 2%. Not fair, but that's the way it works. So Google and Facebook want these auctions to go on. If you're an advertiser, then you don't want data for data's sake. You want data because it makes things cheaper. And if you're Google and Facebook, you're doing it because they're demanding it, not because you want to. So GDPR, if it's done properly, and I'm not optimistic it is, but hopefully over time, solves everybody's problem. Because it begins by saying, if we do it right, raise your hand knowing what you're signing up for. And therefore, when you get these ads, you'll like getting them. That's what permission marketing is about. What it says to the advertisers is, you don't have to race to the bottom anymore because there's a law that moved the bottom up. That's good. And what it says to Google and Facebook is it's an auction. People are still going to bid. So it's all fine. As long as you don't have guardrails, people are going to keep driving off the edge of the road. So putting in guardrails is smart. Now, here's the problem. The problem is the regulators haven't done their homework and they're going to create laws that look good but are easy to get around where you click a button accepting cookies and then the next thing you know, they're everywhere. It's back to where we were. So what we're going to need is an ongoing series of regulations because that's the only way to keep up with tech because otherwise tech's going to just drive right around it. Continuous learning. Yeah. So um, well, last thing I wanted to cover was uh, podcasting. Um, uh, which uh, I've been listening to Akimbo and enjoying. Um, in 2015, I wrote an article where I quoted you as saying that uh, that you said that there would be a glutton podcasting because there's an infinite amount that you can create. Yeah. I uh, maintained in that article that growth is going to be capped because of the poor ability to share podcasts and also the poor discoverability, especially in iTunes. Mm -hmm. Overcast is doing a good job. Uh, but what do you believe is the state of the business in podcasting? And is it something that more brand marketers should be looking at? So, yes, I've made the glut worse by showing up with a podcast, and I'm aware of that. Uh, I have the advantage of having a permission base of a million people, so I'm cheating by going to the head of the line. But, yes. You've if, deserved if it. You've built it up on purpose and done well. Well, thank you. But if your goal is to build a media entity, starting with a podcast is – problematic. It costs a lot of money to find out how you're doing. You've got to stick with it for a long time. As you pointed out, hard to search, hard to discover, hard to share. Uh, on the other hand, we have discovered that people like audio and they're happily multitasking while driving and running and everything else. So if someone can consume two hours a day of podcasting, there's a, mar there's a, a, a market to be made there. The question is, what's the best way to monetize it? And uh, one approach is being a direct marketer, meaning you run ads where the URLs have tags on them and you're going to track cost per acquisition. That's a really hard thing to do in audio. And the other way to do it is with brand sponsorship. And we know that brand sponsorship works. It just takes guts because you don't know where it works. And mm -hmm. I think podcasting is shifting now from direct because it didn't work for most organizations. Like how many mattresses do you need to sell to pay for a $40,000 sponsorship? It's too many mattresses. Mm. Um, to a brand sponsorship model, which is more like American Express sponsoring the US Open. So if you build a podcast, 
with a brand that people care about that isn't a hard sell it is worth sponsoring even if you're sponsoring your own thing because it builds up the soft tissue around that work that you say you want to do the marginal cost for a brand marketer to do that is tiny and you don't need very many loyal listeners to be glad you did it so just in your last podcast on akimba this is you talk a lot about the difference between direct marketing and brand marketing and and somehow i feel that podcasts allow for a little bit more weirdness and humanity because you know if sure. i cough you're going to hear me if i interrupt you you know that blah, blah, blah. that's sort of a, an authentic thing and, and maybe that's what brand marketing needs a little bit more of yeah well brand marketing in the 60s 70s and 80s stripped away all the wabi-sabi all of the humanity of it because polished was the easiest way to bring a reliable item to the masses. Quirkiness, you know, we don't sell sobs or Citroens in the United States anymore because they were too quirky. And, but in a post-mass world, quirkiness is the difference, right? Everything else is going to be the same thing built in some factory somewhere. It's the quirkiness that we're going to talk about. So, yes, a brand that stands for something will have more trouble becoming McDonald's but have an easier time becoming Kiehl's or Redken or something that people actually care about. And that's the future for most of us. Beautiful. Seth, thanks for coming on the show. I'm not going to ask you how to be reached because if they don't know how, well, they can surely find the show notes and I'll, I know how to reach you best uh, for that with um, Twitter or your podcast or your fantastic little pithy blog statements. So, Thanks for coming on the show, Seth. It's this was great. Been a delight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the work. We'll see you. You bet. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, film me. All your colors any different way To rid me of the gray And heal me With all your imperfections That you mention in your Lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care
with all your favorite shades and we paint it with our fingers to show the world the way we feel oh, oh the way I feel Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.